Last time we spoke about the hilarious disaster that was the attack on Sydney Harbour. Then I proceeded to do a podcast solely on Mr. Douglas MacArthur and his great blunder of the Philippines' defense. I really do hope you enjoyed my banter about MacArthur and got more of a sense of what the man was really like because he is going to be very important going forward. Today, we are beginning a new phase of the New Guinea campaign and Douglas MacArthur will be playing a very heavy hand in it. The Japanese war planners did not give up on taking Port Moresby after the failure of Operation M.O. Operation M.I, aka the Battle of Midway, would complicate the war plans considerably, but they would still put major efforts into taking Port Moresby and strangling Australia into submission. It is time to start talking about what the Japanese called Green Hell, the story of the New Guinea campaign. This episode is the first raids on New Guinea. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where you can find a few videos going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Now, since Douglas MacArthur had fled the Philippines and set up shop in Australia, the governments of Australia and New Zealand came to an agreement to grant complete cooperation to the American general. That statement is far from true, but most textbooks will tell you just that. In truth, Australia and New Zealand knew that working with Douglas MacArthur was a necessity you know, just from a standpoint of getting resources from the United States. That's basically what was going on. Now, within MacArthur's command, aside from Americans, there were also Australians, Filipinos, Dutch, British, and New Zealanders. There were ties of mutual respect and admiration among the commanders, staff, and troops that allowed for an almost complete lack of friction and misunderstanding. That last part of the sentence, again, not exactly true, but a lot of textbooks claim this. Nonetheless, this allowed MacArthur to help develop the defenses of Australia, to reorganize the Australian army, and to integrate their forces arriving from the Mediterranean front with the American units. In that regard, by June, MacArthur could count with 10 Australian and 2 American divisions for his allied land forces, totaling some 400,000 men under the overall leadership of Australian General Sir Thomas Blamey. To retain their authority over the Pacific, Tokyo's war planners knew that they had to prevent American forces from building up in Australia. 
And you know what? Another thing to add to all this, because I don't think it actually made its way into the YouTube episode. This is all coming at a time where Britain was afraid of kind of losing Australia to the United States. You see, because of, well, the Pacific War, the ties to Britain from the Australian point of view were kind of being severed. Australia was not too happy about having all of their boys fighting in North Africa and Europe when they needed them back home defending themselves and their country from the Japanese. And who ends up being arguably a greater ally to them in these dire times? Well, it's Uncle Sam. Indeed, if you read, let's say, books from Sir Winston Churchill, his thoughts on it are actually pretty interesting, and he talks a lot about the fear of losing Australia to the Americans. And the camaraderie that we see today between America and Australia really was built during the Pacific War. Though that isn't to say they didn't butt heads, because they hilariously did. And one rather funny story was when the United States military had to try and educate their men to stop going after Australian women. You see, a lot of the time, the Americans would come to Australia and they would have a few uh, weeks at a time before going off into battle while most of the Australian men were in places like New Guinea already. So this left a ton of Americans wandering about in places like Sydney with a lot of Australian women around. And yes, this, this did lead to a lot of headbutts. And uh, if you look up Pacific War propaganda drawn by the Japanese, the Japanese actually built upon this idea that the Americans were stealing all their women while the Australians were in places like New Guinea. So just a bunch of uh, oddities and weird stories there. Now, getting back to the episode. The Japanese knew that they had to prevent American forces from building up in Australia. How to do this was an overarching question that would dominate the Japanese military policies throughout the Pacific War. The IGN and the IGA heavily disagreed with each other on the answer to this very question. The Navy wanted to occupy at least Australia's northeastern portion which is absolutely crazy. But the army was against this, probably because, well, like I said, it was batshit crazy. Close to a million troops were stuck in the China War and along the Manchurian borders with the USSR. Even if, by some kind of miracle, they had managed to occupy a small portion of the Australian continent, they would be facing one of the worst wars of attrition imaginable alongside it being a very, very large distance away, so it was a logistical nightmare as well. The IGA favored instead a naval blockade to sufficiently isolate Australia from the United States and to strangle her. A much more sensible idea, to be honest. Regardless of the IGN and IGA bickering, the key to putting some hurt on Australia was New Guinea from which bombers could threaten Australian cities and the IGN warships could patrol Australian waters and ports. When the Pacific War kicked off, Australia was in a terrible position. Four of her combat divisions were serving in North Africa and on the Malayan Peninsula, as were nine of her RAAF squadrons. Five of her cruisers were stuck performing operations in the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean. She had one armored division, with no tanks, and virtually no trained soldiers left to defend the nation of 7 million people. The defense of the continent was left to a militia, 
Air defense for her 300 million square miles was left pretty much to 29 Hudson bombers and 14 PPYs. Defense against air attacks would also rely upon a small number of Australian-built training planes called Wearaways, which were pretty much useless in aerial combat. They were training planes after all. These were the conditions of January of 1942. Fast forward to June of 1942, the Battle of Midway was a devastating loss for the IGN. Four fleet carriers sunk, 228 aircraft lost, with 121 of Japan's most experienced and virtually irreplaceable pilots. The Japanese would struggle until the very end of the war to replace the carriers, aircraft, and pilots. But Japan was not even remotely close to being beaten. Still, stunned by their loss at the Battle of Midway, the IGN began to worry that the American fleet might begin counterattacking them in their own home waters. On June the 11th, the planned invasion of New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa, part of Operation FS, originally set for July, had to be postponed, and subsequently it would be cancelled around two months later. On June the 7th, a meeting of the operation staff of both the IGN and the IGA agreed, quote, Research will be immediately undertaken to find out if Port Moresby can be invaded by an overland route. Now, Operation FS was supposed to take place after the successful destruction of the Pacific Fleet at Midway. The operation's aim was to completely neutralize Australia by cutting it off from the United States. On May the 18th, the recently formed 17th Army, based in Rabaul, was established to carry out Operation FS, under the command of Lieutenant General Hayakutake Harukichi. Five days after the IGN and IGA reached their agreement on requiring an overland route to Port Moresby, the IGA instructed Lieutenant General Hayakutake that he was to cooperate with the Navy in devising a plan for the capture of Port Moresby by means of an overland route from the east coast of New Guinea. The Japanese knew the limitations of the facilities at Lei and Salamawa as jumping off points for such a venture. So the HQ ordered Hayakutake to send elements of his army to occupy another location just a bit further down the coast, near where the Mambare River empties into the Solomon Sea. He was also instructed to look for additional places to locate air bases. Earlier reconnaissance surveys had already identified the airfield near Buna, around 60 miles south of Mambare River. It looked like it could be expanded upon to become a major base. After the loss of four fleet carriers at Midway, there was a large necessity for Port Moresby to be acquired so the Japanese could gain air supremacy over the Coral Sea. The two airfields there could be expanded for the use of Japanese land-based aircraft, and the controlling of the Coral Sea airspace would allow Japan to sever communications and supply connections between Australia and the United States, thus permitting Operation FS to be reinstated. The seizure of Ley and Salamawa, accomplished in March of 1942, were the initial steps in taking the grand prize of Port Moresby. In the meantime, Port Moresby was the target of steady bombing campaigns by the IGN's 24th and 25th Air Flotillas. In May alone, 
403 aircraft took part in 20 raids. Yet, our friend, Mr. Douglas MacArthur and the Australian General Blamey, kept up a steady flow of supplies and men to replace the losses at Port Moresby rather quickly. Soon, enhanced anti-aircraft defense began to force the Japanese planes to stop low-level bombing, and then they had to attack from 20,000 feet, which reduced their effectiveness. Japanese reconnaissance aerial photography began to convince them that there was a direct route from Buna across the mountains to Port Moresby. On July the 1st, General Hori ordered a small force of his South Sea Detachment, which was now part of the 17th Army, to go to Buna and to investigate the roads in the area for an overland path to the opposite side. The troops General Hori selected for this special assignment had not had a chance to leave when all of a sudden the Imperial General HQ revised the orders on July the 11th. The new orders stated, The 17th Army, in cooperation with the Navy, shall at the opportune time capture and secure Port Moresby and mop up eastern New Guinea. By mere coincidence, four days later, on July the 15th, General MacArthur issued his plan for developing Buna into an Allied base from which his aircraft could attack Lawa, Salamawa, and Rabaul. MacArthur planned to send one Australian infantry division and a unit of American Army engineers overland from Port Moresby to, quote, Seize an area suitable for operations of all types of aircraft and secure a disembarkation point pending arrival of sea parties. MacArthur began moving everything he required in Australia closer to New Guinea, even his HQ which moved from Melbourne to Brisbane. The American 32nd Division moved from Adelaide to Brisbane and the and the 41st Division from Melbourne to Rockhampton near the Coral Sea coast. Engineers were busy building airfield facilities along the northern coast of Australia, edging ever closer to New Guinea. MacArthur considered Port Moresby too vulnerable to enemy attacks to expand its Air Force facilities, so he simply moved existing ones up to Australia's York Peninsula. In June, he sent American engineers to work on a new airfield in Milne Bay, on the southern end of New Guinea. They were joined by some platoons from the 101st U.S. Coast Artillery Battalion. Their job was to build and defend an airfield capable of handling heavy bombers at a place called Gilly Gilly. This base would secure the southern end of the Owen Stanley Range and reduce the possibility of Japanese forces encircling Port Moresby. MacArthur and Blamey eventually sent the Australian Brigadier John Field to Milne Bay with the 7th Brigade. This force had combat infantrymen, engineers, anti-aircraft batteries, and an anti-tank regiment battery as well. All of the forces locating at Milne Bay earned the nickname, the Milne Force, and were both American and Australian, led by Brigadier Field, who would report directly to General Blamey. It's honestly quite interesting when you think of it in the grander scheme of things during this war. The IGN and IGA legendarily had problems with each other that resulted in them literally going to war with another. This was to a lesser case the same situation for the American Navy and Army. Yet here we have Americans and Australians having to fight side by side with each other, 
under American or Australian commanders. And with just about any book that you read, for the most part, they were quite friendly with each other. Things went actually very well. It's a very surprising case when you consider all the other cases in World War II that go horrifyingly wrong. I myself am a Canadian, and us Canadians and Americans have this kind of special relationship, and this extends into our military. We do a lot of military actions together, and for the most part, we're always friendly like this. But this was the first time that Australians really had to brush shoulders with Americans. And this could have gone south real quick, but it didn't. And it evolved into basically the same kind of relationship Canadians and Americans have had for quite a long time at this point. And for all of you Kiwis out there, of course you're involved in this as well. I should probably be calling it ANZAC forces, but unfortunately the textbooks always just refer to it as Australian forces. Now, MacArthur planned to have a force of 3,200 men in Buna by early August to build airfields to accommodate fighters and bombers as a complement to the airfield at Milna Bay. In the meantime, MacArthur and Blamey would have to deal with Lei and Salamawa. The Japanese had been increasing their number of sorties from these two airfields against Port Moresby, and on occasion, targets on the Australian mainland. Because they did not yet have a substantial force to use against Lei and Salama, both generals agreed early on to instead use what the Australians called independent companies to harass them and hinder their operations. These independent companies were basically what you could think of as today as special forces, men who were trained for irregular warfare tactics. If you recall way, way back when, there were still remnants of small Australian forces that had to resort to guerrilla warfare, and they were performing reconnaissance on the Japanese this entire time. Many of these men were members of the New Guinea Volunteer Rifles, NGVR. For weeks, they would clash with the Japanese, and they had the assistance of local tribes. In April, General Blamey sent an independent company, the 205th, to Port Moresby to prepare for reinforcing the NGVR in the area of Markham Valley, some 250 miles northeast of Port Moresby. The valley ran west from Ley into a gold-producing area near Wow. In late April, the enemy was expanding its bases and improving runways, pushing the Allies to take some action. General George Allen Vasey, a deputy chief of the Australian General Staff and a close confidant of General Blamey, and the American General George Brett, commander of the Allied Air Forces, was involved in a specific meeting. This meeting made a decision to form a large guerrilla outfit called the Kanga Force, which would absorb the NGVR units and other Australian units in the area around the Japanese bases. Added to this would be two independent companies, a motor platoon and an anti-tank battery group. The purpose of the Kanga Force would be to perform reconnaissance and, when feasible, conduct small raids. By May, General MacArthur told General Blamey that he had hoped the time was now near to make some limited offensives against Lei and Salamawa, and possibly even retake their airfields. But General Blamey explained the difficulty of moving men and materials into the area, prompting MacArthur to ask General Brett to provide aircraft to move the Kanga Force. Throughout May, June, and July, the Kanga Force harassed and prevented the Japanese from expanding their areas of control. 
Meanwhile, over in Washington, military planners were looking for ways to take advantage of their victory at Midway. MacArthur and Blamey argued for operations in New Guinea. However, Admirals King and Nimitz were planning operations against the southern Solomon Islands. Their goal was to drive up and hit Rabaul, one of the mightiest Japanese bases in the Pacific. From the very start of the war, the British gradually believed Admiral King was staunchly opposed to the Europe-first strategy, but this was untrue. Admiral King strongly believed in the Europe-first strategy, but he was an aggressive admiral and he did not like leaving a single resource idle. Thus, if something in the Atlantic was just sitting around, he wanted it to get to work in the Pacific. But the British, well, they saw this as him simply trying to boost the Pacific war effort. King would often argue that some offensives needed to be made against the Japanese to prevent them from becoming too firmly entrenched to a point in which it would be impossible to dislodge them. Let us all not forget the entire Japanese plan from the get-go was to hit America as hard as possible, then turtle up and hope America's will to fight would fall apart, as the Americans tossed more and more men against the Japanese defensive perimeter. One of the many offensives King was arguing to begin was a northward drive up the Solomons, using only Marines. But General MacArthur wanted this offensive for himself and argued that the army should be doing it. By June the 8th, MacArthur presented plans for a full-scale assault against New Britain and New Ireland to be followed up by hitting Rabaul, and then perhaps the Bismarck Archipelago. He requested a division trained for amphibious operations like, let's say, the 1st Marine Division, and three carriers to support the entire offensive. The plan was called Tulsa and it would be backed by General George Marshall, and Washington really liked it. Now, everyone agreed on the desirability of Operation Tulsa, and the need to speed it up. But, conflict came when Admiral King demanded the operation be commanded by the Navy. King argued the operation had to be commanded by the Navy because, quote, It was primarily of naval and amphibious character. Well, MacArthur disagreed with this and said the army needed to lead the offensive because the objective of the command was in his southwest Pacific area. Thus, the issue of command became a heated argument between the U.S. Army and Navy. MacArthur was denied the Marine Division and the carrier support because honestly that was really crazy of him to ask for. King also opposed it alongside Rear Admirals Charles Cook, the Chief of Navy War Plans Division, because the enemy air bases in the region were far too strong and could place the carriers in danger. To the Navy, it would be better to go slowly up the Solomons and hit Rabaul, eliminating the enemy air bases along the way. MacArthur agreed to their point and stated both the Solomons and the north coast of New Guinea were preliminary steps for the invasion of New Britain. Yet, MacArthur still would not yield to the subject of command, because MacArthur. In the meantime, MacArthur was planning the construction of the airbase in Milna Bay. By June the 12th, he had finally authorized the construction of the secret base at Gili Gili, 
near the head of Milna Bay. Ten days later, a company of the 46th Engineer Battalion and two companies of the 55th Australian Battalion were secretly transported using the Dutch KPM ships Karsik and Bontakoy, escorted by the Australian sloop Rorego and by the Australian corvette Ballarat, along the coast of the site. This was known as Operation Fall River, and it was a huge success. They were unhindered by the enemy. On top of this, MacArthur ordered the construction of another airbase at Merake, located on the southern coast of Dutch New Guinea, intending to protect Port Moresby's western flank. By late June, the time was ripe for the Kanga Force to launch its first raid. The 2 and 5th Independent Company of Major Thomas Keane and Major Flay got enough men together to move into the Bololo Valley to conduct small raids. Among the objectives of these raids were Heath's Plantation on the way to Ley and the Japanese bases in Ley and Salamawa. Two raids were to occur, one over Heath's Plantation and the other over Salamawa. On June the 29th, a collection of 70 raiders led by Captain Norman Winning, including some Australian commandos and NGVR veterans, made a successful raid over Salamawa. Winning divided his forces into seven parties, Lieutenant Kerr's party against the aerodrome, Sergeant O'Neill's party against the wireless masts of Kella, Lieutenant Leach's party against the medical assistant's former house, this was a native hospital, Winning's party against the former police master's house to the north of Leach's objective, Corporal Hunter's party against the Morabi Bakery area, Lieutenant Olhaglin's party against Kella Point, and Lieutenant Drydale's motor party in position to break up any attack which might develop from the isthmus against Kella. This was a highly sophisticated raid. A lot of different objectives to be taken, a lot of moving pieces, and it was, it was very impressive. It inflicted an approximate 100 casualties upon the enemy. They captured vital documents showing plans for the future Japanese landings at Buna and Milna Bay. They also blew up some bridges, houses, and, well, the native hospital, which sounds a little bit awful, all without losing a single man. In addition to this, a motor party fired 36 motors over Salamawa, scorching the area. By midday, the raiders were gone like ghosts. The Japanese were understandably nervous after this raid, so they decided to reinforce Salamawa with 200 more soldiers. Two days later, another company of 70 men, under Major Keen, launched a raid over Heath's plantation. Under some really heavy rain, the raiders stealthily got in and killed the sentries, before blowing up a bridge, causing chaos for the Japanese. In a firefight that pursued at the plantation, around 40 Japanese were killed. Unfortunately, Major Keen was shot directly in the chest, and as a result, the raid was called off. Keen would die of his wounds later on. Nonetheless, the raiders successfully escaped to the west. And all during this time, the hot fire argument between the army and navy raged on. By the way, if you think this argument between Admiral King and General Douglas MacArthur was a one-off, boy, boy are you in for a surprise. Because it's going to go on for the rest of the goddamn war. The hatred these two guys had for another is legendary. 
I am not kidding you when I say multiple books have been written on this subject alone. Check out the title of this book, for example. Personality and Strategy. How the personalities of General MacArthur and Admiral King shaped Allied strategy in the Pacific in World War II by the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. This book is quite a fun piece of literature, and it's coming straight from the source, the U.S. military. They don't hold their punches when it comes to this stuff. But just to give you a bit of a sneak peek, this book makes the argument there were three pivotal decisions made during the entire Pacific War by these men and their arguments. The first was the decision to initiate carrier raids against Japan in early 1942. King acted unopposed in pushing these rather audacious plans through. Because at the time they actually were quite, quite audacious, that's a good word for it, yes. The second decision was to invade Guadalcanal aka Operation Watchtower, in August of 1942. King and MacArthur drove this decision by bickering with another, trying to vie for control over the offensive. This is, if you haven't guessed yet, currently what we're dealing with. Finally, the last one was the long competition between the two men over the Central and Southwestern Pacific drives. This resulted in a huge debate overtaking Luzon in the Philippines, or Formosa. Now, that last one is a huge can of worms. But to put my two cents into it, as they say? The decision to go through with retaking the Philippines over Formosa had rather horrifying consequences. To name just one of those consequences? The Battle of Peleliu. I've always liked to nickname the Battle of Peleliu the most horrifying detour in history. If you have never heard of the Battle of Peleliu, I encourage you just to give it a good Google. Go on Wikipedia for once and check it out. You'll see what I mean. It's one of the bloodiest battles in the entire war. Only eclipsed, I would say, by the Battle of Okinawa, which is just another monster of its own. MacArthur was obsessed with retaking the Philippines. Most of his decisions during the Pacific War were directed at operations edging ever closer to the Philippines. But when you pull out a map, and you look at this logically, take the Philippines and Formosa and put them beside each other, it's pretty obvious that Formosa was the more sane choice. It would have driven the Japanese more so to surrender. But anyways, I'm getting way too far ahead into the future, but needless to say, a lot of people, and not just me, would say this. The Battle of Peleliu probably should have never happened. They should have gone around Peleliu. There's actually a few islands they should have never gone to. But because of MacArthur, he argued they had to neutralize Peleliu in order to be able to invade the Philippines. So, uh, needless to say, after all that, the rivalry between Admiral King and General MacArthur sure made the Pacific War more colorful, to say the least. On June the 25th, King submitted his first draft for the invasion of the Solomons, and obviously, it was to be exclusively done by Marines and Naval units. But it also added some support from MacArthur's aircraft, ships, and submarines. King was so damn resolute, he told Nimitz to commence preparations for the operation. Marshall didn't oppose the plan, but he kept MacArthur's claim to command the offensive. 
King told Marshall he didn't need MacArthur, nor his forces for the operations, and warned he was already set to perform the operation at any moment. When MacArthur found out about this, he rapidly refused to grant any support for the invasion of the Solomons, and he accused the Navy of trying to gain complete control over the national defense of the United States military and reduce the army to a training and supply organization. <laughs> That's so cute of him. Marshall then tried to appease MacArthur by reminding him that they were at war with the Japanese and not the United States Navy, and to set up work to find compromises between the two. So, lest you believe only the Japanese had the inner service issue, the Americans had their own inner service issue. Though by no, and I mean no means, is it comparable to the Japanese. Like, my god, the Japanese Navy intentionally dumped army units onto islands without their supplies just to mess with them. On June the 30th, Marshall met with King to discuss the matter, and they struck a deal. On July the 2nd, a directive was issued by the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the New Britain, New Ireland, New Guinea Offensive. A whole lot of news. The operation would be conducted in three phases. Task 1. The seizure and occupation of the Santa Cruz Islands, Tulagi, and adjacent positions. This is all parts of the Solomons. Task 2. The seizure and occupation of the remainder of the Solomon Islands and of Ley, Salamawa, and the northeast coast of New Guinea. Task 3. The seizure and occupation of Rabal and the adjacent positions in New Guinea and the New Ireland area. MacArthur obviously wanted to be in charge, because MacArthur. But the Navy objected to this, because MacArthur. After all, the first task was almost entirely amphibious in nature, so task one would be assigned to Vice Admiral Gormley, commander of the South Pacific Area. The Southwest Pacific Area would provide him with whatever naval and air support it could scramble together. Admiral King also urged the Joint Chiefs to exclude MacArthur from the command of Task 1. He did this, get this, by literally moving the border between the South Pacific Area and the Southwest Pacific Area to the west just a tad. The new border bisected the Solomon Islands, placing its lower half, including Tulagi, in the South Pacific Area. I believe our YouTube video shows this on a map. You have to look at this. It's worth a Google. It's so funny to see how they divided this tiny little part of the map and just shift it a little bit, just so MacArthur doesn't have control over that section. Now, MacArthur was going to get to command the other two tasks, but both Gormley and MacArthur urged the target date of Task 1, which was set for August the 1st, to be pushed back because, well, neither of them had sufficient resources to make it successful yet. The Joint Chiefs ignored them. MacArthur accepted the plan nonetheless because, in the words of his biographer, D. Clayton James, MacArthur realized that, though the directive was not altogether to his liking, it represented the first significant departure from the basic Anglo-American strategy policy of merely containing the Japanese until the defeat of the Germans was assured. 
I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some Pacific War content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube where I do cover that really bloody and stupid battle of Peleliu I was talking about before. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. So, Admiral King and General Douglas MacArthur's bromance would continue to rage from this point going forward. The war between the Army and the Navy would subside. Now and then, when they remembered, they were at war with the Japanese and could, when pushed, come to some compromise. Next week, however, we're going to go back to China and see the final conclusion of the Zhejiangjiangxi campaign, also known as Operation Sago, as the Japanese withdraw back to their original positions and cause much more damage upon the civilian populations with the employment of biological warfare.